You're listening to the MoneyWeb Now podcast series with Simon Brown. Live streamed every weekday at 6.30 a.m. It's Tuesday, 9 January. Local vehicle sales for December and full year just after 2 p.m. today. I'm Simon Brown coming at you live and loud from the MoneyWeb offices in Houghton, Johannesburg. On the show today, Alex Day from Thumbo Wealth. Life Healthcare, they've confirmed the sale of Alliance Medical Group. I spoke to Peter Wootenhood last year, CEO. He said about $8.4 billion coming back to shareholders. Uh, and, I mean, some of it buybacks, but the rest in, in cash. I don't know. Is there value there? Uh, Michael Dodd from Morningstar SA. Uh, very t- complexities of SA income funds. Uh, and then Advita Naidu from uh, Jack Hammer. Bore out, reclaiming your career. Different from burnout. This show is brought to you by Stanlib. Visit stanlib.com to get in touch with one of their investment specialists. Stanlib Asset Management is an authorized financial services provider. Morning headlines from News 24. SA manufacturing mood turns upbeat on stronger activity. December PMI above 50 for the first time since April. Uh, Business day rand fixing case against banks collapses. Harsh words from court after competition commission failed to give evidence of a conspiracy to fix the currency. Morning markets. US was green. S&P up 1.4%. NASDAQ up 2.1%. The East is mixed. We got Sydney off 0.1%. Tokyo is back up 1.4%. Hong Kong up 0.6% and then 10 off a third of a percent. Commodities all red. Gold, 2040. Brent, 7647. Platinum, 961. Palladium, $1,012 an ounce. Rand, 1858. Bitcoin, 46,900. Top 40 opening call, looking for about 285 points to the green. That's 0.4% upside. MoneyWeb now on the money. Also available on podcast. Turning now with uh, Alex Dyson from Thimble Wealth. Alex, appreciate the time. Life Healthcare, it was a while back when they uh, mentioned to the market that they were initially had an offer for Alliance Medical Group, then they accepted it. It's now all being approved as per the sense. When I spoke uh, to Peter Wootenhood, the CEO, last year around results time, I mean, he talks about $8.4 billion potentially coming back to shareholders, a bit they're going to use for uh, the, the, the debt and the like. I mean, is there is, is there perhaps just an arbitrage here, never mind perhaps a, a value opportunity? Is, is this something that, 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 that you think is worth a look at? Market cap, what, $26 billion? Morning, Simon. Um, yes, yeah, certainly life health care is on our radar. So I think that when the announcement came out, that was all positive. Mm. Uh, the price they received and the fact that you're going to get roughly 60% of the proceeds in dividends, which, as you allude to, that 8.4 billion is about 6 rand in dividend. And considering the share price is 18 rand, that gives you a sense of the dividend yield, right? So it's very quite high. Um, but I think what spooked the market a little bit was was, was the operational update. Um, that was well below expectations. Mm. Um, even though the top line, they did quite well with more volumes due to some network gains they've made, but the cost side of the equation was much worse. And this was on margins and brokers and the likes then downgraded earnings expectations over the next couple of years. So the question I think investors need to ask myself is, um, if you're willing to hold this, you know, perhaps medium term, you, do, you are going to get a nice dividend. Um, mm. The balance is going to be in a good position. They most likely will get share buybacks as well further down the line. And then if there is an operational optionality to recover in the future, then the share price could be interesting um, a few years down the line. But there is, you know, I, I guess, I think the easy money that people anticipate, it's probably not on the table in the short term. It's probably going to be more backdated to in, in the future if you believe in the story. Um, 
in, in life healthcare. Yeah, but, and I mean, when the when the announcement first came out, as you say, that the stock absolutely ran and, and, and it's come back quite markedly. I mean, there's opportunity. I mean, we've got not much on our market. Of course, MediClinic has, has left the market. I'm having a quick look at Netcam, and here's a stock that's largely gone sideways for the last two and a half, maybe as long as, as, as three years or even more. I mean, is healthcare a, a space that intuitively you, you think has opportunity? So I think the problem, if, I mean, life healthcare and in healthcare are predominantly SA-based businesses, right? Yeah. So and if you look at South African GDP per capita, we haven't grown since 2013, approximately. So that means people are not getting richer, and that makes it more difficult for people to get access to private healthcare. It wasn't for the private sector, for the government really pushing uh, members through gems and so forth, there would be even worse numbers. Um, so I think that's a problem. It's it's quite ex-growth, and at the same time, you've got this NHI potential mm. catastrophe that's, that's on, on, also on the horizon. So I think that, that spooks a little bit some investors. But saying that, I think the valuation multiples certainly aren't expensive. Um, and there is perhaps opportunity to increase those margins back to pre-epidemic levels. And that could create opportunity. Um, but it's difficult. It's, it's, it's one that we do see as potential opportunity, but we're not... Uh, standing on the rooftops and shouting that we need to buy this one. <laughs> no, I take your point 100%. And, and I think the, the key thing, it's difficult to grow when there is no underlying economic growth. That's what really is the bigger challenge. We'll leave it there. Alex Dyson, Thumble Wolf, always appreciate the early morning insights. If seagulls were hardy dars who could afford to retire to the coast, what kind of bird would you be? Would you soar over the savannah or chase summer around the globe? You see, even when you stop working, your money won't. When you invest in Stanlib's fixed income funds, you can retire earning a regular income off your investments. Invest for more certainty at stanlib.com forward slash more. Stanlib is an authorized financial services provider and a registered manager. MoneyWeb now on the money. Chatting now with uh, Michael Dodd, Senior Fund Analyst at Morningstar South Africa. Michael, appreciate the early morning time. The Association for Savings and Investment South Africa, uh, recent data this up to the end of September of last year, shows the three largest fixed income fund categories grown from, what, $167 billion in 2012 to $817 billion. That, that, I mean, to me as a, as a novice in the space, looks like a giant increase over just over a little bit of a decade. Certainly, investors in South Africa have massive appetite for this uh, sector. Hi, morning, Simon, and, and Happy New Year to you and your uh, your listeners this morning. Yeah, you're right. I think that's a bit of the crux of the work of what uh, what I did in the research piece last year that, mm. uh, that Morningstar put out. So I think income funds, particularly in South Africa, as you mentioned, have remained extremely popular um, among South African investors and has seen significant growth, not just in the number of assets, as you uh, pointed out, but I think also naturally where we've seen assets grow and where we've seen investors place their money. So too have we seen a number of fund, uh, new fund launches. So the asset managers in terms of like the, the product yeah. launches in the category have also been quite active there as well. So if we take, for example, the South African multi-asset income fund category, which of those three ASISA categories you mentioned is the um, is the largest in, in terms of assets, We've seen consistent new fund launches in that space year after year with the number of funds in that category more than doubling over the last decade. So income funds in general, I think they remain an important part of an investor's toolkit. And, and in the South African fund landscape um, has been probably the most popular area 
um, over the course of the last decade or so. Uh, you mentioned the, the, the multi-asset income funds, which was uh, something I hadn't, I mean, I, I was aware of it, but I hadn't really dug into it. I mean, as you say, especially popular. And, and this allows sort of, I suppose, non-traditional, to my mind, uh, uh, asset allocation, such as equity, such as, as, as REIT property exposure, which adds return, but potentially adds risk as well. Yeah, that's right. I mean, the, the, the multi-asset income category, as I said, is the, the most popular, and I think it's probably the most popular for fund launches and amongst the, the asset managers that run products in that space, mm-hmm. I think because of that flexibility that they have. So in contrast to a traditional fixed income product, so what would CISA would call their interest-bearing funds, the multi-asset income funds have the ability to um, invest in a far broader spectrum of assets. So they can invest in what are typically your more volatile asset classes. So the, the multi-asset income funds have the ability to go up to 10% in equity. They can go up to 25% in listed property. And obviously after the, the regulatory changes as well, they have the ability to go up to 45% offshore mm. um, in their portfolios as well. So, and I think that's that's made it a bit of a challenge, I think, for investors who are are looking to select the right income fund for their needs, because there is such a dispersion of um, strategies within that space. Um, so, for instance, as well, within the, the multi-asset income space, there are no duration limits on the funds in the category. Oh. Um, so the, the risk and return objectives of the individual portfolios can vary as they are dictated by each portfolio's mandate and their investment objectives and their strategies. So it's... It's an interesting one that investors need to get their heads around because the, the they're all called income funds, um, but one manager's income fund might look very different to another manager's income fund based on their, their particular approach. I take the point because, for example, the SA interest bearing, I mean, the short term, there, if I recall correctly, the, the duration is, is, is capped out at, at, at two years, which in many senses uh, should sort of smooth volatility and, and, and lower risk. Yeah, that's right. So I think that that category in particular is more traditional, I think, in the yeah. income fund sense, in that the duration is capped um, at at two years, um, as well as the investable universe is more limited to your traditional income uh, products so, or, or income instruments. So that category, for instance, can't go into things like property and, mm. and equity as well. Do we see, if we look at the multi-asset income funds and we, we compare them to those more traditional, uh, uh, the interest-bearing short-term, do we see better returns for the multi-asset? Certainly we're going to see improve, higher volatility. Does that give better returns on average or, or is it a bit of a mixed bag? So I think the the jury is still very much out on that one. And, and that's part of the research that we did at Morningstar to try and look at this in a number of different ways. So I think in general, if we compare the two categories, so the the more flexible multi-asset income category and the more conservative South African interest-bearing short-term mm. category, um, the average performance over the last five years has been generally in line uh, between okay. the two. So the additional flexibility that the the multi-asset income funds have has not necessarily translated into better performance on a risk-adjusted basis. Um, And what you do observe is that, particularly with the multi-asset income category, is that the funds in that category tend to experience greater volatility um, and tend to have deeper drawdowns during market shocks. So like the COVID-19-induced market sell-off of 2020, um, the you know, they they followed, I think we're a bit more 
volatile in line mm. with some other multi-asset funds, whereas the returns of the interest-bearing category um, are, tend to be more closely aligned with the interest rate cycle, um, I think, given the, the conservative nature that they, they have. And I think the, the other point maybe to make in, on that as well is that while the average returns have shown very little in the way of differentiation, there has been a much wider range of outcomes um, for funds in the gotcha. multi-asset income category as well. So I mean, given that there are a number of different strategies being employed by managers in that particular space, um, the range of outcomes has also been fairly wide. Which brings me to the last point. I mean, and you alluded to it a moment ago around the, the investor in some ways spoiled for choice, in other ways, you know, confused by choice. Minimum disclosure documents become hugely important to understand what you really are investing into. Know your manager, their strategy, and, and you know, is this a more traditional interest bearing or is this a multi-asset? Yeah, that's right. And I think what we tried to lay out in the in the research piece that we put together was um, a framework for investors to to use to assess the various income funds as mm. a, as an investment option and particularly that multi-asset income category because I think we believe that understanding the risk characteristics of these funds and then the subsequent return expectations is is key for investors yeah. and what the the framework that we laid out basically looked to do was to understand what are going to be the three key drivers of risk and return um, for these types of funds. And we, we narrowed it down to effectively three things. The, the first being asset allocation. Mm-hmm. So quite simply what the mix of asset classes are in the portfolio. And that is a mandatory disclosure on a fund's MDD. Yeah. Uh, so the, the minimum disclosure document. Um, and I mean, that obviously provides very valuable information about the makeup of the fund. It gives you insights into the fund's risk characteristics, particularly if they have exposure to more volatile asset classes like equity and property in the fund. Um, the second uh, key driver is duration. Um, yeah. We kind of alluded to it earlier, um, but that is a pretty key risk metric um, in understanding the interest rate sensitivity of the portfolio um, and how sensitive the return outcomes could be to changes in interest rates or bond yields. Um, and again, higher duration does potentially expose investors to increased drawdowns and downside risk if it isn't being appropriately managed. And I think, unfortunately, this key risk metric isn't a mandatory disclosure um, on fund fact sheets. But Mm -hmm. I think encouragingly, we do see some asset managers being quite proactive in disclosing this to investors in their fund literature. And then the third um, key driver being credit. Yeah. Uh, so the um, you know obviously the the exposure outside of what would be sovereign government bonds in South Africa the credit market is fairly limited um, in that you know our exposure is typically to banks um, state-owned enterprises and corporates um, and in addition the South African credit market is quite narrow um, and is is fairly illiquid so you often have a lot of instruments in that space that don't reprice and mark to market um, as much as say credit instruments in offshore markets do that have uh, that are that are a bit deeper and a little bit more liquid so you in understanding a manager's credit exposure um, you know we you also need to be able to to look through as I guess how managers are using credit as a as a lever of returns um, in portfolios and particularly if they aren't you know, given the constraints of the South African credit market repricing on a regular basis, that can make the volatility um, in those income funds look 
or perhaps understate uh, the volatility yeah, that, gotcha. that might be present in some of those funds. Yeah, it looks less volatile, but that may be not a, a true reflection. Michael Dodd, Senior Fund Analyst, Morningstar South Africa. Appreciate the early morning. When you stay invested over time in Stanlib's Global Multi-Strategy Diversified Growth Fund, your money's in for some smooth sailing. With our global partners, J.P. Morgan Asset Management at the helm, your money can withstand the pressure and bad weather day-to-day market conditions cause. All aboard? Seek more returns at stanlib.com forward slash more. Stanlib Asset Management is an authorized financial services provider. MoneyWeb now on the money. Checking now with Vita Naidu, uh, Africa MD at Jack Hammer. Vita, appreciate the early morning burnout. I think most of us understand what burnout is. Uh, some of us might have had the unfortunate experience of it. Uh, you were writing towards the end of last year around bore out. What is bore out? Yes, I think, you know, I don't want to stress that we're not minimizing burnout, which is quite debilitating in a work context, Um, but it's received a lot of attention, as you said. But because it's less prevalent, burnout can be quite insidious, a silent mood killer, and it's essentially chronic boredom at work. It's a lack of stimulation. Adam Grant uh, calls it languishing, and it's really, it's characterized by low motivation, low challenge, low interest that results from having too little to do, too much routine. Um, and it's just, it sounds trivial, but I think employers should appreciate that it can mean low productivity. Yeah, and maybe too many meetings, as we spoke about last year. <laughs> I, I, I take your point. I mean, it, it is, you know, the, the idea, you know, the, the classic cliche is I, I work too hard. But the flip side is you don't work hard. You sit there and you're wondering what to do with your sort of nine hours of, of, of eight to five. If you find yourself in the space, because this is bad not only for the, the staff member, but it, it's not good for the, for, the, for the business as well. I mean, this is, this is debilitating. And, and what do we do to try and get around it? Because I think a lot of listeners are like, yeah, I understand that bore out it makes sense well i mean absolutely you know this isn't something that we've documented in a vacuum as a recruitment company we receive almost three times the number of job inquiries in november and december that we do over the rest (laughs) of the year and the narrative typically is i don't feel challenged i'm ready for a change so you're right it is something that far a far greater number of people can identify with if you think about you know pop culture there's the cartoon dilbert there's the movie office space um, chronic boredom or lack of challenge, they, they're core themes. Um, and so for employers to take note, it can lead to employee attrition. As I said, it impacts productivity because board employees, they work slower, they make more mistakes, they, like you said, waste time on irrelevant activities, kind of just like twiddling their thumbs. And then the knock-on effect is uh, on morale and culture and reputation of the company. So not everyone suffers to bore out, uh, suffers with bore out, but we live in a world where we're now more aware of our our emotions and our mental health and our triggers and our boundaries to so that feeling of being physically but not mentally present is probably quite conscious for a lot of people. Um, and it seems like a simplistic solution. Sorry to get to your point about the, mm. the solutions, but you know, with that point in the year, we were thinking about goals and our New Year's resolutions. And so we should be thinking about seeking new opportunities, learning new skills, taking on more responsibility. And another hot topic for last year was AI. And AI has meant that a lot of tasks can be automated. So why not automate what can can be automated and use that as an incentive to seek out more creative activities that are going to keep you more engaged for the year. And this would be, I mean, we, we, we do, when I was working in the corporate world, we had the, the performance reviews. They were pretty much backward looking. There was then some mm-hmm. some KPIs and the like, which was more forward looking. It's focusing on that and, and saying to your, your line manager or whoever it is, a case of, you know, I, I need more challenge. I need to pass some of this boring stuff onto 
AI or, or a personal assistant or something and, and let's bring some, some proper challenges into the process because changing a job is one option, but it, it, I don't know, it, to me it doesn't seem the, the, the ideal option. It's not, especially not if you like the company, you like the yeah. culture, and you know you're, you're making the assumption that going to a different environment is going to mean less <laughs> go out, and that's not always the case. But I mean, you know, not to put too much responsibility on the employee, on the employer side. You know, I think a lot of people get terrified and think these things mean massive programmatic change, but we can also take stock of whether the disengagement is it isolated or is it systemic, and go from there. And there are things that you can be uh, that can be done, bolster or pay more attention to your your learning and development program. Make sure mm. managers, like you say, set goals for their teams and help them work towards them. Make sure people are being used to the best effect in line with, not with their current skills, but in line with their potential. And I think a, a big thing is appreciating that people want to feel valued and that their work has meaning. So even if the work is somewhat repetitive or tedious, that's no reason not to appreciate the effort that went into it or the person that did it. And, and I like that point. It's not about the current skills. It's about the potential. That perhaps more than anything is at the core of it. We'll leave it there. Uh, and I do Africa MD at Jack Hammer. Appreciate the early morning. And that's our poll today on uh, LinkedIn and Twitters. Are you struggling with bore out at work? Um, have your vote, have your say. LinkedIn and Twitter. That's it for today. We were chatting with Wayne McCurry yesterday around commodities in 2024. Last year, horror for commodities and even more horror for the miners, the commodity companies. Of course, that leverage effect works both ways. We asked you what you expect this year from the sector. Wayne was bullish. Uh, 40% of you said mixed bag. I suppose fair enough. There's a bunch of different commodities in that broad space. 30% bullish and the rest of you were bearish. Have your vote. Have your say. LinkedIn, Twitter. The show is brought to you by Stanlib. Visit stanlib.com to get in touch with one of their investment specialists. Stanlib Asset Management is an authorized financial services provider. We're live every weekday morning. The Money Web website's in the app, 6.30 a.m. podcast, just after 7. Thanks to my team, Eddie Nubuchle, Siren, to you for listening. My guests for their time. My name is Simon Brown. This is Money Web Now. We'll chat again tomorrow, the Red Sea. You've been listening to another MoneyWeb Now podcast, posted every weekday at 7 a.m. on moneyweb.co.za. MoneyWeb Now, on the money, 24-7.